Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, Predator MD, part of the Journal-Constitution's special investigative project, Doctors and Sex Abuse. You can learn more about the project and this podcast at AJCBreakdown.com. Previously on Breakdown. There are new developments tonight in the case of a local doctor. He's accused of sexual battery. Tonight, he's out of jail. And more women are coming forward. They say they are victims, too. He did something to me that I don't think any woman would feel comfortable When I found out about those women in Atlanta, I blamed myself for that because I think... If I had gotten the Ohio Medical Board to stop him, it wouldn't have happened down there. She never told me that I do not want you to touch me. And it's fair. I mean, if a person doesn't like it, you don't like it, you tell me. You set the boundary and that's that's perfectly fine. My hands may have touched her low thigh, but never in a sexual way, never was I told that she was uncomfortable. After Dr. Vinny Gupta had manipulated them, exploited them, humiliated them, his victims were left to second-guess themselves. I said to myself, why'd you let him do that? Why'd you let him go that far? Why did you let him do that when you knew he shouldn't be doing that? But, you know, again, it's, you believe what they tell you. That was one of his victims from Atlanta, Crystal Douglas who says Dr. Gupta groped her breasts during an unchaperoned exam in early 2009. And here's a woman from 12 years earlier in Ohio who says Gupta gave her a vaginal exam with no chaperone and an ungloved hand. I feel that regret of why didn't I say something? Would it have changed anything? Because he's gotten off so many times on worse cases than me, it sounds like. But digging into Gupta's professional history during the two decades he spent in Canada and the United States, with his exploitation of women, his total lack of contrition, his victim mentality, the setbacks to his career, the squandered second chances, I can't help but wonder, what was this guy thinking? Welcome to episode three. I'm Johnny Edwards of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's investigative team. I certainly wasn't one of the lead reporters on last year's Doctors and Sex Abuse Project, and I certainly wasn't the smartest reporter on the project. You'll hear from some of those folks later in this episode. But my research led me to this local case, which echoes many of the same patterns of systemic breakdowns and abusive behavior that we documented in case after case after case across the country. What would make a physician, after more than a decade of schooling and training, risk a promising career offer some repulsive thrill, giving no thought or sympathy for those he trampled over. Part of the answer emerges in this 1998 deposition taken in Lima, Ohio, 
when Gupta was suing the local newspaper over a front-page article about a malpractice claim he was wrapped up in. An opposing attorney brought up his prior treatment for a psychosexual disorder. Gupta denied ever having such a problem, contradicting disclosures from another lawsuit that he himself filed. So when he was asked what the psychiatrist at a treatment center in Texas thought was wrong with him, here's what Gupta said, quote, they didn't come to any conclusion except they felt that I had narcissistic personality disorder, end quote. Others I've spoken to had reached that conclusion on their own, without ever having poured through the boxes of legal documents where I found that deposition in Ohio. Susan Witt, an Atlanta medical malpractice attorney, represented Gupta's final victim in the United States, a teenager he groped so roughly he left her in tears, with bruising on her breasts. Dr. Gupta, I, I mean, he's a narcissist. I mean, narcissists are only caring about meeting their own needs, and they're not going to take into consideration the consequences to others. It also fits with the recollections of Dr. Norman Moser, a nephrologist in Lima who worked with Gupta in the mid-1990s. He seemed to be okay as a physician as far as knowledge is concerned. And as far as his clinical practice in medicine, nobody could really argue that, with the exception that he had almost a deity type of uh, perception about himself. And he frequently would tell his patients that there's no other kidney specialist around quite as smart as he is. And that if he ever jumped ship, or if the patient ever jumped ship, then the quality of their health care would go down. So he, in essence, was putting down every other nephrologist in the area to inflate him to almost deity-like levels making the patients uh, quite afraid to uh, go to anybody else, which made it a little bit difficult to cover for him on the weekends. Dr. Moser took me for a ride to show me the old Gupta home, the same house where Gupta held that 1995 Christmas party where he danced with a nurse from Lima Memorial Hospital. I think he's narcissistic. He has a godlike image of himself. And I think that his narcissism creates an environment where he feels he's above everybody else. And for that reason, he deserves to behave the way he behaves. Gary Schoner is a clinical psychologist from Minneapolis who has worked on thousands of cases like this one. He said the Gupta case fits the classic modus operandi of most doctor sex offenders. No empathy, delusions of grandeur, lots of women duped and abused. If you're grandiose and Certainly people in professions can easily fall into that. You're grandiose on top of the world, and you're just looking for get, getting your uh, own uh, needs met. You're not thinking about the, the rest. So what was Dr. Gupta thinking? Let's go back to another court case in Lima from 1999, when nurse Marjorie Jacobs sued him for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Gupta believed his career in Lima was faltering not because two nurses from two hospitals had come forward saying he sexually harassed them and attacked them while they were at work. He believed that the nurses, as well as hospital administrators and at least three rival doctors, were all conspiring to run him out of town. It was because they didn't like people from India and because he had chosen to leave a prominent nephrology practice in town and open his own practice. That's what he asserted in court filings and, to some extent, when he took the stand in his own defense in the Marjorie Jacobs case. All kinds of barriers started coming into my practice. I was thrown out of the office without an office. I was practicing from the street. I had a beeper. 
I was being paged. I didn't know where to see these patients. My responsibility is to the patients. And these patients were calling me, you have an appointment. You're my doctor. And I could not see them. His posture in the case was far different from the apology letter he'd penned to the St. Rita's Medical Center chief of staff a few months after the two nurses came forward. Dr. Gupta wrote, quote, I now realize that I misinterpreted the nature of my relationship with those people and that I do not contend that any of them are at fault. I should have realized that my actions were not appropriate and that while I did not realize it at the time, I was being offensive to these people in my approaches and activities. Furthermore, I recognize my actions to be serious. I do not contend that anyone other than myself is at fault for the situation." End quote. I had Dr. Gupta on the phone briefly in December 2016, and I talked to him about what happened in Atlanta. In his version of events, he didn't get into trouble with Georgia police because he terrorized a teenage patient and her father called 911. It wasn't because he had been molesting female patients in his exam rooms and a detective's phone was ringing off the hook with victims coming forward. It was actually because one of his own office assistants, who didn't like him and who was a thief, had recruited these women into an intricate conspiracy to exact revenge on her boss. This all started because of an employee that had stolen money from the office, and I caught her. I was glad to have Dr. Gupta on the phone finally, and I wanted to keep the conversation going, so I kept him talking. Was that someone in your office on Medlock Bridge Road? Yeah, I mean, they they walked away with money from my office, and I caught her red-handed, and then she returned the money, and she had a grudge. And so she worked for the next six months trying to somehow implicate me and, you know, vindictively try and teach me a lesson for embarrassing her in front of all the staff for having taken the money. The case that started it all is all nonsense. Is that the employee who reported you to the, to the Board of Medicine you're talking about? The same employee sent all the papers to the Board of Health, yes. She also instigated all the people, all the three people to come and complain about me. Remember in episode two when very early in his career he got in trouble for allegedly touching a medical intern's breast in Saskatchewan? And how he said in a deposition that his program director handled it by merely warning him to have someone else present when doing that sort of thing. And remember my telling you that it's a rule of the Georgia State Composite Medical Board that male doctors have chaperones in the room when examining patients of the opposite sex? Well, here's the line of questioning I tried with Gupta that prompted him to hang up on me before I even got close to the stuff I really wanted to ask him about. I believe the way this started, you were doing exams of these patients without a chaperone in the room, without a female chaperone in the room. Why, why were you examining a female patient, uh, you know, alone by yourself? Well, how does anybody practice? Do you have a chaperone every time that you see a female patient? Right, I believe that's what's... And is that how medicine practices in, in the United States? That's how medicine is supposed to be practiced in Georgia. We spoke a few more minutes, and he ended the call. There is more to it than meets the eye. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, Dr. Gupta? Uh, Dr. Gupta? I am not by any means the first person who's tried and failed to burrow into the mind of Narendra Kumar Gupta. Just listen to Marjorie Jacobs' attorney, the late Jim King, cross-examining him on the witness stand. In one of my first conversations with Marjorie, she told me that Gupta once explained to her how he got from the first name Narendra to the nickname Vinny. 
She must have told her lawyer that story, too. You do have a nickname, don't you? Yes. Vinny, right? That's correct. Didn't you tell Marjorie that you're called Vinny because you're invincible? I don't even know what you're talking about, sir. Okay. Vinny does not mean invincible. And you did not tell Marjorie Jacobs to call no. you Vinny because you were invincible? No, sir. Thank you. That's a confabulation. Because he was a medical doctor, he never had to go through this kind of interrogation by anybody wearing a gun and a badge while he lived in Ohio. As far as I can tell, he only had to go through it with lawyers and with hospital administrators and other doctors sitting on peer review panels in hearings held in secret, which brings us to one of the most monumental breakdowns in the story. Marjorie Jacobs told you in the last episode how her bosses at St. Rita's warned her that if she went to police about being grabbed from behind in a darkened room, dragged into a corner, and forcibly groped, that she'd be fired because the hospital wanted to handle it internally. Well, here's how Lima's medical community handled it internally, by treating Gupta not as a criminal predator of women, but as an impaired doctor in need of mental help. Marjorie said that after she told her bosses what Gupta had done to her, the two men sitting at the far end of a long, empty conference table, scribbling notes on legal pads, the first thing the medical staff director did was try to shift blame to her. First words, what did you do to provoke him? I said, I did nothing to provoke him. And he says, well, you know, it's probably just his culture. And I said, you know what? Dr. Mahaltra, Sam Bansal, N.K. Bansal, Dr. Karana, I said, all them would beg to differ. I said, they are all Indian doctors. None of them has ever done any of this stuff to us girls. None of them. I said, you tell them that. I think they would be insulted. Both hospitals suspended Dr. Gupta's privileges. Lima Memorial Hospital told him if he wanted back in, he had to get treatment. I couldn't get any former administrators from either hospital to talk to me for this podcast. They're retirees in their 70s and 80s now, who either didn't return calls or said they had no recollection of the Gupta affair. John Banja, a medical ethicist at Emory University's Center for Ethics, can guess why they did what they did. Clearly, their moral obligation is to confront this doctor, to hear his side of the story, and to the extent that uh, the hospital is convinced that they have credible evidence of sexual attacks, then the fact of the matter is a crime occurred on their premises because sexual attacks are criminal. So what that hospital should do it seems to me, is contact the legal authorities. I don't know if it occurred here in the Gupta case, though, but going back to the 90s, there is a belief that lots of hospitals wanted to protect their doctors. And also, they wanted to eliminate or prevent any kind of embarrassment or humiliation from bad press going out to the community. So it's, it's quite possible that they, in fact, did the wrong thing and tried to cover this up, tried to hush the case up in the interest of good public relations and, and, and not making any trouble. Normally, the public can't find out how hospitals and other health care providers deal with doctors such as Gupta. The records are private. When hospitals hold peer review hearings to mete out discipline or corrective action, those hearings are so secret that in 21 states, Ohio included, even the state medical boards can't get their hands on the records. We know a lot about how Gupta was handled, though. 
thanks to those bankers' boxes full of litigation records back in the Lima, Ohio courthouse. The most extraordinary document is one that Gupta filed himself. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Before we jump back into the story, let's pause for a few minutes. I want to pull the camera back. Dolly it back away from Vinny Gupta, away from his victims, high above the suburbs of Johns Creek, above the skyscrapers and highways of Metro Atlanta, above the green state of Georgia, all the way up into space looking down on the USA. As shameful as the story is, Gupta and every colleague, supervisor, and state medical official who ever gave him a pass are actually part of something bigger, a nationwide scourge that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution exposed last year. While investigating the competence of a prison doctor, reporter Danny Robbins read through Georgia Medical Board orders and found a shocking trend. Doctor after doctor, sexually abusing patients and being allowed to keep practicing. It's not like the Catholic Church where the church was moving these chess pieces around. It's a system. It involves hospitals, it involves colleagues, it involves medical boards and law enforcement. It all kind of works together to keep these guys in practice. So when you look at some of the individual cases, you often see all these pieces at work interconnected to give deference to these physicians, to allow them to keep uh, seeing patients. What the doctors, mostly males, did to patients, mostly females, ran the gamut. They ranged from doctors who made inappropriate sexual comments to doctors who molested children or raped women during gynecological exams. There were doctors who assaulted patients while they were under anesthesia. There were psychiatrists who manipulated women into sex acts. Then, there were the gropers. We learned a new term in our work, frauderism. That's a compulsive need to touch other people's private parts or to rub one's private parts against someone else. We talked to women like Maria Zito, whose doctor, Raja K. Jugtiani, was accused by eight women of touching them inappropriately. All of a sudden, before I knew it, he had my shirt up to my neck. I was like half naked in his office with my breasts out. It's kind of like um, I went to another place. I couldn't move. I, his eyes just glazed over. He was in front of me, and it was so disgusting. Carrie Teagarden the newspaper's health and investigative reporter, was one of the lead writers. There's such a range of, of what can happen in the office that can leave people confused. Like in Texas, there was a Dr. Philip Leonard who fondled patients' breasts or pressed his erections against them during exams. One patient came forward and eventually 17 did. 
In Georgia, uh, a patient who saw Dr. Jacob Ward, um, who was still in practice, she went in for a back rash and facial redness, and the doctor um, exposed and fondled her breasts and put his hand down her pants. Sometimes it's it's more blatant, and the patients clearly know something very inappropriate took place. One example that's pretty typical, actually, in Kentucky, uh, Dr. Ashok Allure was examining an infection on a patient's abdomen. And uh, then he entered what we would all consider forbidden territory. He told the patient she had sexy underwear. Uh, he rubbed her private parts, placed his mouth on her genitals. Um, the patient pushed him away, and she did go to police. The doctor's explanation later was, it was so beautiful, I just couldn't resist. Even more jarring was how America's medical industry treated such doctors with kid gloves. Cases handled quietly. Doctors shielded, private disciplinary hearings, private medical board orders, public board orders stripped of any language about sexual abuse, doctors' reputations placed ahead of protecting patients, doctors shuffling from place to place. When we looked at thousands and thousands of disciplinary documents covering everything from malpractice from, and failure to renew your license on time, were more than 3,000 cases of doctors who were publicly disciplined for sexual misconduct over about the last 15 years. And more than 2,400 of those were sanctioned for violations that clearly involved patients. Um, the rest involved sexual harassment of employees or, or other crimes that didn't involve patients. But the other thing we found is that Many, if not most, cases of physician sexual misconduct are still hidden. State boards and hospitals handle some cases secretly. In other cases, medical boards remove one's public orders from their websites, or they issue documents that cloak sexual misconduct in vague language. It's impossible to know how often this has taken place, but what we were able to do was establish that it's happened in every state, in every state, um, doctors are often forgiven and allowed to return to practice. Of all the doctors who had been publicly disciplined for sexual misconduct, half are still licensed to practice today. Carrie mentioned something I'd forgotten about. One of the top experts in the field of physician sexual abuse once gave a talk to the Georgia Composite Medical Board, sternly telling them it's a mistake when hospitals brush off doctors being inappropriate with staff. That's a gateway drug, so to speak, to abusing patients. Here's Dr. Gene Abel giving that presentation. So generally, the CEO has a slap on the wrist talk with the doc. You know, say, listen, I've heard some bad stuff about you. You've got to stop that. Uh, that's really bad. Stop it immediately. That doesn't work. As a matter of fact, that is really bad because what it does is show the physician that what they were accused of isn't that big a deal. So I would say, if you have any control over hospitals, that's the one thing you ought to emphasize, that they do not go for a wrist slapping for sexual harassment, because it is antecedent to professional sexual misconduct. But what if Dr. Narendra K. Gupta really is just someone with a mental health disorder, someone who needs help? someone who is, to some extent, a victim himself. Well, I wonder what would happen if that defense were raised in a court case where someone were being criminally prosecuted. Is that a defense? 
And I think what we've seen elsewhere in society is zero tolerance for sexual assaults. This is just treated differently when you're talking about categorizing it as an illness. 20 years ago, that's how Lima Memorial Hospital handled it, by trying to fix Dr. Gupta's purported illness. Gupta said in a deposition later that he knew of six people who had complained about him. Yet Lima Memorial felt the solution was a confidential contract with Dr. Gupta, requiring him to get psychiatric help and a doctor's note saying that he wouldn't sexually harass women anymore. His treatment didn't go well. Gupta himself laid out the whole history in a counter lawsuit he filed in 1998. Lima Memorial sued him for $1.7 million, trying to recoup most of the $1.9 million that it had to pay the family of a woman who fell into an irreversible coma, allegedly because of Gupta's negligence. So Gupta countersued Lima Memorial, plus St. Rita's, plus two nephrologists he used to work with, plus their medical practice, and plus Lima Memorial's property management arm. He wanted $20 million. Gupta contended there was a conspiracy in Lima to drive him out of town or out of business because he's Indian. The story he laid out included being summoned to an urgent meeting by the president of Lima Memorial a few months after Marjorie and the other nurse came forward. He claims he was told if he didn't sign a contract agreeing to take a leave of absence and get help, the hospital would hold a press conference that evening and declare Gupta a sexual predator. Gupta said the hospital sent him to a professional assessment program in Minnesota, which, after five days, recommended that he, quote, enter and complete the program for psychosexual disorders, end quote, at a behavioral health center in Dallas, Texas, called Timberlawn. This was an open secret among Lima doctors, according to Gupta's former colleague, Dr. Norman Moser. The only thing I knew was that he lost hospital privileges at St. Rita's Medical Center entirely and that he had limited privileges at Memorial Hospital pending whether or not he went through a treatment program in Texas. During his three-month stay, Gupta wrote a letter to his wife saying he wanted to make amends and accept full responsibility for his actions. This letter became a public record later, during his divorce case. Gupta told his wife he had, quote, indulged in behavior that was inappropriate, end quote. Behavior that breached the doctor-nurse relationship he admitted to touching and hugging Marjorie Jacobs and the other nurse, and he identified three other women he had mistreated by first names. Gupta said, quote, I also hugged Anita of medical records and Julie of ICU and asked her to come out to dance on three occasions. I put my arms around Leah at our Finley clinic and made all these people uncomfortable, end quote. But something went wrong at Timberlawn. Gupta said in his countersuit that he got an unfavorable report and Lima Memorial began backing out of the deal. During his divorce hearing, his ex-wife shed more light on what happened in Texas. She said Gupta told her the program was just a money-making enterprise, that he wasn't doing anything meaningful in it. Then he relapsed by giving a friend's wife a back massage. Gupta eventually walked out of the program, saying he couldn't take it anymore. That's all according to his ex-wife. The former Mrs. Gupta also testified that during his peer review hearing at St. Rita's, her husband admitted that he did harass Marjorie Jacobs and that he was sorry for the trouble he caused. Gupta denied that. In a deposition during his lawsuit against the newspaper, Dr. Gupta denied undergoing treatment for psychosexual disorder or having any such problem. Asked by an opposing attorney why he said in his countersuit that he had been recommended to enter a program for psychosexual disorders, Gupta said that was incorrect, 
and that the program deals with all kinds of things, such as drug addiction. Here's Dr. Schoner again. There are people that are absolutely not curable. Listen, this is hard enough to cure if you're motivated. That's like saying, can alcoholism be cured? Well, in some people, but by cured, it means you can, you are people that can control their drinking and not drink at all, but it's, what do we say? One day at a time, day by day? By 1997, Gupta had lost his privileges at both of Lima's major hospitals because of the allegations by the nurses. He was still practicing, working in rented professional space on Lima Memorial Hospital's campus, and the hospital was trying to evict him. According to yet another lawsuit against him, that year, one of his own nurses quit after less than two months on the job and filed a sexual harassment complaint with the Ohio Civil Rights Commission and the EEOC. The woman, I'm not naming her because she declined to be interviewed by me, said in her complaint that Dr. Gupta asked her to attend a drug conference in Chicago with him. When he picked her up in his car, she says he casually informed her that he had only booked one hotel room. Is this a problem, he asked, according to the nurse. She balked. Then when Gupta stopped by his house to pick up a sports jacket, his then wife went ballistic upon seeing her with him, screaming at her husband in a language the nurse did not know. The nurse assured Mrs. Gupta she was happily married and had zero interest in her husband. Then she refused to go on the trip. Gupta got physical with her during the ensuing weeks, the woman alleged in her complaint. He would grab her by the cheeks with both hands, and she would show disapproval by shaking her head free. He would try to keep her after hours, but the other women in the office would lag behind to make sure she wasn't left alone with him. This infuriated Gupta. Then, in a back hallway, he grabbed her by the face again. She pulled away and tried to walk off, but he came up behind her, put his hands on her biceps, put his nose in the back of her hair, kissed her head and pushed his genitals into her thigh. Even with all these allegations, a judge threw out the woman's case. He said her complaint didn't establish the elements of sexual harassment, since Gupta's actions weren't threatening or humiliating and didn't interfere with her work performance. I know what you're thinking. Wow. Fast forward 10 years. I spoke to a woman who lives in Lawrenceville, a nurse practitioner named Gretchen Olds. I found her name in Gupta's police file on a list of 16 names scribbled in a notepad by a Johns Creek police detective. Gretchen was one of more than a dozen people on that list who had called police with tips or to say they were victims too. I asked her to tell me what she told police. I didn't know what to think because this is a physician. This is a doctor. I came to him looking for a job. I came to him looking for help. To work. And he was concerned with how good my body was. He was concerned with how beautiful my face was. He was concerned with getting inside my drawers. Gretchen said she was out of work in 2007, and she answered a classified ad for a job in Gupta's Diabetes and Hypertension Center in Johns Creek. Gupta had her come in for an after-hours interview around 6 p.m. Gretchen said he was the only one left in the building. She said he locked the door to his office, pulled his chair close to hers, and then this happened. In a stepwise fashion, it went from being an interview about my qualifications, because he talked about my qualifications and about how smart I was and about how capable I was and 
too, about how beautiful I was and about what a nice body I had and how close he got to me and sitting right next to me to having his hand up my skirt and his arm around my shoulder and his hand right on my breast to his hand up inside of my skirt, up in between my thighs, to telling me that, that the only way that I can get a job is the way that women get jobs is by being cooperative and being women. I, he said, he said, well, you need a job, don't you? You need to support your family. He said, You're, you don't think that everybody's going to give you a job, do you? Gretchen said she felt trapped. I was terrified at that moment because he, was, he wasn't letting me out of the office. He was getting in between me and the office. He was grabbing at me. He goes, what are you going to do? Who are you going to tell? Because I said, if you don't let me out of this office, I'm going to start yelling. He goes, there's nobody here. And I said, I'm going to, I said, I, I'm going to call police. He goes, who are they going to believe? Only when her cell phone rang, Gretchen said, did Gupta get distracted enough to let her leave. It's unfortunately it has affected my marriage. It's affected my life. It affects your perception of who and what you are. You don't see yourself the same. Later that year, Gupta hired a 20-year-old Russian immigrant to work as a receptionist. She'd only been in the U.S. for about four years. She was in college at the time and got the job through a male friend who also worked for Dr. Gupta. Before that, the only job she'd held was as a waitress. The woman didn't want her name used in this podcast, just her voice. At first, she says, she simply winced and went along with Gupta's overly physical attentions. She wanted to stay in the good graces of her new employer. And, you know, eventually it would progress to where, over time, he, he became to, like, start pulling me closer and and try to like, like, hi, give me a kiss. And then he'll try to give me like a kiss on the cheek with like his cheek and eventually start being more and more sexual. And I mean, I start push, pushing away from him, you know, by the end. I think that's why the relationship is one, was one of the reasons the relationship deteriorated because, you know, when I start realizing that it was get over, you know, it's crossing the border. It's no longer a, fl- a friendly kind of hug or something like that. It's, I was just, you know, try to push him away. And, you know, he was, he was, by the end of my work, me working there, he was very, I mean, he was very angry with me. She lasted three months at Gupta's office. As in the account of the nurse from Gupta's old office in Ohio, the former receptionist said the other women in the office would all rush out right at five o'clock so as not to be left there alone with their boss. I've made a mistake of staying with him one time. And the way this came around is that I had a, I had a back issue like my upper back, I still, you know, my upper back, it still sometimes hurts me. And he realized that, that I'm having that issue because I'm always fidgety, you know, I move around because my back hurts. And he's like, you know, is your back hurting? I'm like, yeah. And he offered me to come, you know, see him as a doctor to address a problem. And I was very happy about this because I didn't have 
health insurance back then. I was really young. I didn't have health insurance. I didn't really have the money to go to the doctor. And he's like, oh, you know, just stay after and, you know, we'll take a look at your back. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's great. The first thing he did was an x-ray to see what was going on with her spine. He wanted me to take my clothes off with an x-ray, which I later realized was not necessary. Okay, people do x-ray in their clothes all the time. Um, but, I mean, I didn't take my clothes off entirely. It's just dressed down to my underwear. Then he offered to do a full physical. She said yes. Just like do a physical exam, like he touched my neck. I don't know why he did that. But he ended up doing um, like a breast um, cancer exam on me. He made me stay again, stand against the wall. He made me put like my arm like that on the wall and, and stand it. And he was just like, you know, like touching my breasts. From my experience of it, it, would take way, it took way too long. And before that, I mean, that was my first time I've ever had it done on me. And thereafter, I had it done with different doctors. And it was not, it was way, way, way more than it was necessary. Like the other doctor, it just takes him like five seconds to do it. And then it took him a really long time. And he wanted to do like a vaginal exam on me, but I said no. After that, the woman says, the in-office kissing and hugging escalated. Eventually, she couldn't take it. She quit without notice, with just $400 in her bank account. She didn't report him to police until a year later, when she saw Dr. Gupta on the news. I was really embarrassed at what happened. I didn't think anybody would believe me, just because he was a very prominent doctor and I was basically nobody. And I was really young, I was a kid. And more than that, I haven't told anybody, because I was so embarrassed of what had happened. I didn't tell my mom, and my mom still doesn't know. And I don't ever want her to find out, because she would be so upset about it. None of my family knows. Still to come on Breakdown. A police detective gets the case of Dr. Narendra K. Gupta. Would he just examine one breast at a time, or was he examining both breasts? Well, at the same one time? at the time when my hands were on the wall, and then he would go behind me and do both with both hands. Was he explaining anything while he was? No, there? he was quiet the whole time. And he was just standing behind you? Yep, and I would feel his penis and everything behind me. You've been listening to Breakdown, Predator MD, by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story was reported and told by Johnny Edwards, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio is by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Music was composed and performed by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Additional music composed and performed by Chris Basta. Special thanks to Bert Roten, Sean McIntosh, Lois Norder, Buddy Hall, and Chris Nicholson. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash 
unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh, 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 oh,